Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Talent, Olympians, youth sports, and success. These are all topics we've talked a lot about here on How She Really Does It. And my guest today, Mark McCluskey, is here to share with us the ever-evolving intersection of sports, science, and technology along with developing athletes. As a veteran journalist, Mark's latest book, Faster, Higher, Stronger, takes readers behind the scenes with a new generation of athletes, coaches, and scientists whose accomplishments are changing our understanding of human physical achievement and completely redefining the limits of the human body. Mark, hello and welcome to my show. Thanks for having me on. Well, so this is a conversation that through the eight years of having the show, I've had lots of people like Dan Coyle, who's endorsed your book, and um, Carol Dweck, who's across the bay from you over at Stanford, um, and many others, and a lot of Olympians who've come on, because to understand how do these people become great athletes, right? So that we can maybe take a part of it. And then one of my backgrounds is that I've been a swim coach for a number of years in that sport. So your book really resonated with me. And I'm really excited to talk about athletic development. And my first question is like, when you wrote this book, what what did you find out about the impact of science and technology in sports now in 2014? I mean, I think the basic thesis of the book is that science and technology have a massive impact on sports uh, today, and especially at the highest levels, that, that the margins have become so fine between you know, standing at the top of the Olympic podium and finishing fourth or eighth or, or not qualifying for the games at all, that that it's really a fight for little tiny gains over your competition. Um, that most of the big things, most of the sort of like, holy cow, now I'm 10% faster. Most of those, I, most of those, I would, I would argue we found, we, we know most of those things. That doesn't mean we always do all the things that we know work, but, um, it's much, much harder to sort of get these massive improvements. And so it's sort of a fight for what Dave Railsford from British Cycling uh, calls marginal gains, that, that really you improve by aggregating a lot of small gains rather than one big one. Okay. Well, so now a lot of the listeners out there are going to be average people, right? They're regular folks who have kids. Um, they don't have the access to the Australian Institute of Sport or, you know, the cycling teams or, you know, even the Olympic Training Center. So what do you recommend for them when they, when, when they hear or read your book or they hear this interview and go, oh, my gosh, I need more technology. What do I do? Well, um, two things. I mean, I, I, I try to be very conscious of that in the book. You know, the subtitle of the book talks about what we can learn from them. And, mm-hmm. and part of that is, is very tactical stuff on, on things like um, sleeping more. Sleeping more is an incredibly yeah. effective performance-enhancing aid. Um, and most of us don't prioritize sleep the way we should. And part of that is a mindset. Part of that is an understanding of really how you need to approach performance to, to improve. And, and as I said, you know, I think, I think there's something powerful about the idea, you know, thinking about myself, my own life, it's really easy to sit on the couch and be like, Oh, you know, I'm not in really great shape. And, what am I going to do today? And like, go for a ride, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do that race. And maybe I was going to do it. 
And we can sort of get paralyzed in this, in this search for large improvement. I, I think we're drawn to this idea of like, oh, just like this one thing happens and, and we're better. I think there's something really powerful about, the, about trying to atomize that and be like, oh, if I eat a little bit better today, that'll help. And if I get on the bike and ride, it doesn't matter how long I ride. You know, that'll help. If I, if I try and get my mindset a little bit better, that'll help a little bit. And, and you get out of this sort of paralysis by, by sort of the, this, this hope for some, some bolt of lightning that's going to make you great because that's not how you get great. You get great by, you know, to get truly elite, you have great genetics and then you work like crazy. So, um, you know, it's, um, and to me, that mindset is really, really important. You talk about Carol Dweck. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's sort of the growth mindset that she talks about a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that growth mindset is huge, right? It's And for the listeners who haven't heard those interviews I've done with her, the growth mindset is about, you know, the ability to learn and get better and practice. And she talks about with parents or teachers or coaches praising effort instead of the person. And, and and also, I think another thing, especially in the sports realm, is is focusing on process rather than outcome. Yes. You know, you, you can you can do everything right and lose a game. Like stuff happens. Mm-hmm. You know, people people sprain an ankle, or you get a bad call against you, or it starts to rain and you crash your bike. You know, bad things happen in sports that are outside of the realm of our control. really great athletes, really great sporting organizations are able to sort of understand that a bad outcome doesn't necessarily mean the process was wrong. Well, and that I think is hard, you know, like being on the ground floor in youth sports and we have these, I call it a transactional mindset, right? You walk into Starbucks, you place your order, you pay your money, and then you expect what you ordered. And we almost, we walk into sports, especially youth sports with that same kind of transactional mindset. Like, well, look, I've spent this time and this money and this energy. So therefore the outcome should be X. When the reality is that sports is not guaranteed, you know, and even, even in professional sports, like I was thinking about just sitcoms and and television shows or dramas, right? And how they have the same storyline week after week. But one of the great things about even if we watch professional sports is you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. People show up. They try to do their best. Things come together or they don't, and one team wins and one team loses. But we we take this transactional mindset from other areas of our life and try to apply it to sports, which I think gets in the way. I think it's a great point. You know, that's part of why we love sports is the uncertainty mm-hmm. and, and and the the mystery of it. You know, that transactional mindset is just. You know, I'd be interested to hear more about youth sports because I, I think the way we're approaching them right now. I write about this some of the book is is really fundamentally broken in a lot of ways and and two specific ones is are you know I have friends who are redshirting kids in six <laughs> at six years old because they want them to be relatively older because they've read Outliers and they know mm-hmm. about the relative age effect now and they're only having their kid play baseball because we're going to focus our 10,000 hours of practice. I'm making air quotes, um, you know, on one thing instead of spreading that out. You know, mm-hmm. you know this and mm-hmm. any of your listeners might, but that's not the most common path to greatness at the highest levels of sports. The, the, the most common path to, to really elite performance is sampling a lot of sports as a kid, building sort of two things, generalized athletic ability and a love of a sport and offering yourself the ability to find a great match between an athlete's abilities 
their genetic proclivities and a sport. You know, I, I grew up as a cyclist. I mentioned riding bikes already. Like maybe I would have been a great soccer player. I have no mm-hmm. idea. I never played soccer. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's unknowable to me. Maybe that was a missed opportunity. I was an okay cyclist, but not a great cyclist. And, and this idea of pushing kids into one thing early in life because we're sort of going to jumpstart their career and put them on a path to, to an elite athletic career is just, it's just wrong and, and leads to a lot of kids who really, really hate sports by the time they're 11, 12, and 13. And yeah, you know, one of the things like with our younger kids, our seven and unders, we have them break from mid-October until March. You know, it's, it's, I live in Northern California. We swim outdoors. It's just not pleasant. It's not pleasant for the kid or the coach. And they don't need to swim at that period of time. And I always tell parents, I go, look, I know it's coming down the road. Use this opportunity to spend more time together or go do another sport, right? Or enjoy the holidays. And we've literally had families leave our team because we don't, we will not let their kids swim at that time of the year. Now, fast forward it, say eight years. And for some of those kids, it's go time. You know, I call it go time because mm-hmm. college is coming and some of them have a goal of, of participating or, you know, competing in college. And so it's like, okay, these are the things that you need to do. And this is age appropriate. Right. Um, but, and so some people can make that transition and some people can't. They, they are continue to expect, no, we want to have that downtime, but I want to have this goal of being a collegiate athlete. And then that becomes where I have to have these difficult conversations with families about, you know, what, what is it that you're aspiring to? And are you, what's the process that you're going to get there? Right. right? And that's hard. It is. It is. You know, that clear goal setting is really important and, and also realistic goal setting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, I, I dreamt of winning the Tour de France and, <laughs> you know, that didn't happen. Well, that's a whole other thing that we're not going to go into because of the, um, the, all the doping and stuff that goes on. But one of the things that you brought out in your book, uh, Faster, Higher, Stronger, was about the 10,000 hour rule, right? And how we can take something like that and almost take it out of context or use it as a way that can um, either get in the way or sabotage kind of what we're looking for. Yeah, you know, the the, the original studies that Anders Ericsson did that sort of led to, you know, this pop culture understanding of the 10,000 hours rule was was a study with classical musicians in Berlin. And his conclusions from that study were that the best musicians practiced more. Yeah, that's that's not necessarily shocking to anyone. And then he talked about sort of the kind of practice. And and I know you've had Dan on the show and and he's talked a lot about that in the Mm -hmm. talent code on the on sort of the power of really smart practice. the problem is when you take a study like that and then start to generalize it to different things. So, you know, if if the idea is that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is both um, necessary and sufficient for elite performance, that's not true in sports. There, We can point to myriad cases where people win Olympic gold medals with far less than 10,000 hours of practice in their sport. Far less. Three, 4,000 hours. Matter of fact, it's pretty common to have three or 4,000 hours. Um, and it's certainly not sufficient because we all know people, some of us might be those people who've, who've worked very hard for a very long time and have never reached that elite level. You know, elite performance, truly elite performance, is, is a combination of genetics and environment. It's a combination of what you're sort of given through your DNA 
and how you express what you're given through your DNA, through work and the opportunities you have and your financial resources and all of those things. So, you know, it's a narrative we like. We like to believe that anybody can do anything. I like to, you know, <laughs> because, you know, it's part culturally that's important to us here in America. Well, uh, it's the American dream. Yeah. You know, right? someday you could grow up to be president. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do anything you want to do, dear. Um, you know, as I talk to my daughters, like, of course, that's my message. You know, it's, it's when it comes to like, is, is my daughter going to win the Olympic marathon? Probably not, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how hard she tries. You know, it's, so it's interesting. I want to go back to this 10,000 hour rule and, in in some sports there's three or 4,000. Now my question when, as I was reading that in your book, um, the sports that are, um, either more competitive or, um, you know, have, are more established, does that change how many hours that they need to reach that high level or the more technical? Sure. So, I mean, so those are a couple of different things, right? So I think they're definite, I think it is easier to progress more quickly through a sport that is primarily physiologically determined. So taking, you know, sports like running, sports like cycling, sports like rowing, uh, cross country skiing, there's technique, there's, there's strategy, but a, a vast percentage of, of your outcome in that sport is, is physiological. And it's basically, how good are you at processing oxygen? At what percentage of your threshold can you operate for how long? And how economical are you in your movements? Yeah, that's, those are sort of the three factors. So I think you do see um, people progress very, very quickly sometimes through those sports. Um, sports that are more, let's say, skill-based, um, I'll take it to sort of a different type of athleticism. I play golf too. Like it's very hard to be a great golfer without a lot of practice. Some people find it easier than others, but you know, it is, it is skill-based. Baseball is a skill-based sport to, to a great extent, although there are incredible physical abilities that golfers and baseball players have. Um, those sports, it's, you see people, you see certainly, much less of those super quick progressions through that sport, just because you do have to build those physical skills. Um, one of the things like in the sport of swimming, so we'll talk a lot about like once a kid hits high school, if they really want to be a good aquatics athlete, they need to put in 20 hours a week mm-hmm. and swimming is a year round sport. So you you get that thousand hours starting around eighth or ninth grade in right. high school. And so, um, you know, and then when you start to see like, and our Olympians have gotten a lot older in the sport, it used to be high school students and some of it, just how the finances have changed and stuff and, and opportunities to train. But we're starting to see, at least in the sport of swimming, that that 10,000 hour rule does kind of fit for this sport, but maybe it's also because swimming, we're swimming so fast right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the, um, the level of skills that we have are huge. It doesn't mean that, you know, I remember when I was in high school and one of my friends, she swam like summer wreck and I was a year round swimmer. And all of a sudden she just became really fast. I'm like, but wait a second, you haven't been putting, you know, the miles after the miles in the pool. How can this happen? Right. But I do think at some point there is that elite level. It's like you, you, you still have to put in the work oh, and, yeah. you know, and, and maybe your point is that it 10,000 hours isn't the only um, data point that we need to look at. 
Absolutely. And, you know, swimming is an interesting sport in, in the framework that I was just proposing because I think it kind of splits, it kind of sits in the middle of some of those things. Mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously physiology is amazingly important in swimming. And at the elite level, not just physiology, but morphology, what size and shape is your body? Because when, once you start to get to that level, like those differences start to matter. What's, what's the ratio between your shoulders and hips? How hydrodynamic are you just naturally from your body shape before you even start to deal with the technique side of it, which is where I think the skill side comes in that, and that feel for the water, that, mm-hmm. that knowing where your body is in the water and, and how to move it most efficiently through there. Yeah. I call it how, um, how high on the ape index are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and and you see that it's not just swimming. You you know, I mean, it's two super trite examples. You know, if if you're a man who's five six, you are almost certainly not going to play in the National Basketball Association. Mm-hmm. You, you could be a phenomenal basketball player, but your body is not big enough. And mm-hmm. there there have been two or three exceptions in the history of the league out of a population of thousands and thousands of players. You know, the flip side is if you're a seven foot tall man, you are not going to be a gymnast because you cannot rotate your mass fast enough straight up. You can't do it. And so, you know, those are obviously sort of kind of the poles of this, but in the middle, there are these subtle matches between, you know, David Epstein wrote about this in in his book, the sports gene. That's another fantastic Mm -hmm. book in this area. Um, You know, the, the diversity of body types that we have a much, more diverse set of great athletes. There used to be a sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. Vitruvian man or woman sort of average sized athletic form. And that's really sort of atomized into very extreme forms in a lot of sports. I love your description about the Olympic village, right? Where you can have really tiny petite gymnasts and then these really big, you know, tall basketball players or the weightlifters who, you know, or the sprinters versus the long distance runners and how many different body types that there are in the Olympic village. And, and and, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the joke I make in the book is it it looks like not even the same species. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's really, it's striking, you know, I, um, there is a woman named Wendy Fox, who's a graphic designer in Melbourne, Australia, who did this really amazing project of just looking at the height and weight of every female gold medalist in London. And she did this poster and, and you just look at this poster and you start to line these, these people up with each other. And the, the diversity in those body types is, is really amazing to look at. <laughs> That's very cool. So I want to go and talk about early developers and late developers because you made a really good point out there. And in this like race to nowhere in youth sports, right? Where parents are, oh my gosh, I need to get my kid and they need to get those 10,000 hours and let's get them in, um, you know, peewee baseball or whatever it is at the age of five because we can start accumulating those hours. What did you find out about late early developers versus late developers? Well, so kids who tend to dominate in youth sports tend to be kids who matured faster. Um, you know, if you watch the Little League World Series, which I love watching just because I think it's fascinating, um, you know, you'll see, you know, it's, and that's so that's kids nine to 12 at the start of the season. So some will be 13. Um, you know, you'll see kids who are, you know, four, two and weigh 70 pounds. And you'll see kids who are six, two and weigh 175. 
you know, and, and it is perhaps unsurprising that those kids who are 6'2 and 175 tend to like throw no hitters and hit like 15 home runs over the course of the weekend in Williamsport. You know, it's, they are massively ahead of the other kids developmentally. You know, there's no trick. I mean, you know this from your experience. There's no trick to know who the best athlete is today in youth sports. The, 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 the trick is to know who has the most potential long-term. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's when you start to look at some of the studies, and I mentioned a couple in the book, you know, something on the order of 20% of kids who medal in um, the junior world championships in track and field make it to the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, that's an amazingly large percentage of any population. 20% of them make it to the Olympics. That's incredible. You know, I'm more interested in the 80%. So mm-hmm. 80% of Olympians weren't good enough to make it to junior worlds and make it to the Olympics. And, and that's because they catch up. That's mm-hmm. because those developmental differences iron out. And, and then you start to actually see the, the potential of the athlete sort of non-distorted by just earlier or later development. So I've always been really fascinated by this topic. And um, my husband's had two Olympians and one Paralympian. And uh, the two, uh, he always knew it was weird because he kind of knew that these would be the events he would be coaching like in 2012 or in 2004. Um, but he had the wrong people in the place. So the girl, the woman who made the, the 2004 team is Haley uh, Cope. And she grew up in the area. She's from Chico. And he had these really fast high school girls one of the girls uh, broke the national record um, in the backstroke. And um, and when Haley was like 12 or 13, she one of Pete's girls came up to him and said, oh my gosh, can you believe Haley? She just said that she's going to be an Olympian one day. What is she thinking? Right here at this little swim meet, there's four of us that are faster than her, right? She's, right. Not, she's just in this, in Yolo County, she's the fourth fastest. And, you know, by the time she became 25, she's the one that makes the Olympic team and the others didn't. Um, and then uh, the guy who made the Olympic team in 2012, you know, uh, when they were off wherever they were training for the Olympics after he made the team, they were in, I think, Vichy, France. And um, one of the one of the guys, his roommate said, you know, your coach is kind of right. You really weren't that great of a swimmer. And Ryan Lochte goes, what do you mean? And he said, I looked up his bio. You know, his highest notoriety up to this point was he had two silver medals at the Junior Nationals, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody else on the Olympic roster had all this international experience, you know, world championships, all kinds of stuff, Pan Ams, Pan Packs, and here was Scott Welts. So, you know, coming into college, he wasn't this big time player, but over seven years, because of a lot of things that you talk about in your book, he was, you know, in the way he practiced and his mindset and his his, uh, deliberate practice and stuff he became, he really became this great swimmer, um, you know, who's able to go to the Olympics and get fifth at the Olympics. But neither of these kids were phenoms when they're in high school. And I think that's so important for parents. I think it's super important. I think that it's, you know, if you look at the histories and, and again, we can always point to exceptions to these rules, right? I'll have these discussions with people and they'll be like, what about Tiger Woods? It's like, well, yeah. But show me 20 Tiger Woodses. Show me 100. You know, they, these are not exceptions to prove the rule. These are exceptions to, to a generalized pattern of more Olympians develop later in their athletic career than earlier in their athletic career. 
just demographically. And so it's interesting to interrogate why that is and what that might mean. So, and I think you talked about this in your book, but I'm, I'm going to use this word grit, you know, or you use the word trauma. Like, mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of wondering, like, with the Olympians, is it because they've gone through, like, more of the hard, hard up and downs, right? I mean, one of the things that I see why kids get out of sports and they uh, classify it with burnout is I call it they just stop believing what's that something better is possible for them in the sport, right? Um, or they may have been an early developer and then now that everybody else is catching up in maturation, they're going through that struggle of, oh, wait a second. And, and instead of working through that, some of them kind of jump ship. For sure. And I'm wondering now with Olympians is that they've kind of just developed grit over time, right? They weren't, they, they, you talk about this too in the book, um, but they, they're the ones that had to go through the struggle, right? And so it's like the kids who are younger who play with older kids. Mm-hmm. They have to develop more resilience. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the, uh, the phrase that one UK researcher uses is talent needs trauma. Um, I love that. That and, and that you know that doesn't mean that we should be engineering super traumatic experiences. <laughs> His point is that that we've got an athletic development system now today that does not not only doesn't teach athletes to overcome difficult situations, but tries to shield them from difficult situations very often. Mm-hmm. You know that that it and and this especially happens at sort of the developmental level into the national level. You know, if you're starting to show that that level of talent early enough, often because you've just matured quickly, you get better coaching, you get more access to more technology, you get more access to nutritional help or, you know, all of these things, you know, the the positive way to spin it is more support. The negative way to spin it is you're coddled. That's a huge problem though in youth sports. (laughs) Like when you have that transactional mindset, right? It's like, okay, well, what can we, how can we create this blueprint, right? Or have this plan, this road for my child so they can develop with all this intellectual knowledge. And, and, you know, it's, it's like we talk about, we've got to prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child, right? But to be able to, how do, how can kids become resilient and move through it? My husband, I guess a parent loaned my husband some book. I don't even know what the book is, but, um, and he loved it. And I guess there was this idea about this general and how this general had to, um, you know, take care of his men and train them and feed them and get them strong and then essentially send them out to slaughter, right, into war. And he said, you know, as a coach, I have to love my athletes and care about them, you know, and really care about them and then be willing to put them through agonizing pain, <laughs> right? And, and, then, and he goes, and sometimes parents don't want to do that for their kids, well, right. of course not. I mean, because because uh, fundamentally, you know, <laughs> fundamentally, yeah, we just we don't like that. We can't handle it. You know, it's so in the book. You know, this is argument by anecdote, which is the worst kind of argument. But you know, it's just interesting to think about. Like, I mean, probably the three best cyclists of this generation, and and we'll skip pharmacology for a moment. Um, <laughs> Lance Armstrong, Mark Cavendish, and Bradley Wiggins. All three of them come from really awful family backgrounds, like legitimately terrible, difficult childhoods. You know, Brad Wiggins' dad was a pro cyclist himself. He was found dead, beaten to death on a street in Australia after a bar fight. Um, Cavendish's brother has been in and out of jail. Um, And, you know, Cav has struggled with like anger issues his whole life. And those have expressed themselves on the bike. 
you know, Lance has written in, in his biographies about his rage and anger about not knowing his father and, you know, referring to him as a DNA donor. And, you know, there is something, I think there is something to the idea that having a chip on your shoulder is not the worst thing that can certainly happen to an athlete. And so if you, to the extent, and, and I, I, I both love and am terrified by this notion that in, in the UK, UK sport funds a lot of elite athletes directly and as they're making these funding decisions now, especially for younger athletes, they are looking at their family backgrounds. And if it's a coin flip, this athlete or that athlete, this is a factor they're considering. Well, who do we think? Who do we think has a chip on their shoulder? Who do we think has been through things that make them tougher? And 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 give them. It's really really we lose sight of how difficult it is to do this how hard it is to be an elite athlete. The thing, you know, we focus on the upsides, the, the fame, the fortune for some, but not for all. Mm -hmm. um, we don't focus on the downsides. You give up a lot. Um, Jack Raglan is a sports psychologist at Indiana University. He says, look, fundamentally elite athletes are reasonably well-adjusted, um, obsessive-compulsive sociopaths. <laughs> And, you know, he's being funny, but there's a train it's of truth. It's true. It's you know, true. It's like you, you, have to, you have to be completely selfish sometimes, like utterly selfish, and, and not be bothered by that. You have to put yourself into physical discomfort that most of us wouldn't tolerate for 30 seconds, let alone years. Um, you're constantly traveling. You're away from those people who are most important to you. You you don't need a slice of pie at Thanksgiving. I mean, mm -hmm. just down to like the super picayune, but it's just, it's hard. And so I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And, and these UK researchers, as they think about this, are really looking at their developmental pathway and trying to build challenges into that pathway and not have it be smooth sailing all the way along because you learn a lot about an athlete when they face those challenges. Well, and that that's, I think, such an important thing. And I talk with my kids all the time. I have these junior high school group now. They've kind of, I've been growing up with them, but, uh, um, and I always talk about how can we be resilient, right? And so I give them this idea that, look, you know, you're a tree. See this tree here? That's because they're like, when I started this when they were in fifth grade, they're like, what does resilient mean? And I said, look at this tree. It's really resilient, right? Storms come. We have 100 degree days and it still stands. And it may sway with the wind. It may get rained on and it may have really hot, sweltering days but it still stands and it grows. And that's what, you know, you are going to say, because, you know, kids will like to be dramatic and say, oh, you're going to kill us, right? This is going to be so hard. And my comeback now is that's going to be a great story to tell, right? And because we just don't, and so now they've changed, we've changed that language. And it's like, how do we move through? And how can we be resilient? But so often it, I, I think what gets in the way is that it's vulnerable, right? To, to go in, put yourself out there and to dare to be great or to really go all in, it's vulnerable. And again, if we're back in that transactional mindset, why would I put in all this time if there's not this guaranteed result at the end? It, it, and like, you know, that guaranteed result, like let's level set that result. It's if, you know, there is one Olympic champion every four years, you know, how big is the, how big is the universe of swimmers? There's a, if, oh. if we're saying that's the ultimate result and that everybody aspires to, one person on the planet gets to succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, those are really, really crappy odds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no matter how good you are.
And and then going back to your point, because like, and Haley had said this, she goes, you know, parents want well-balanced kids and they want their kids to be Olympians. Those things don't go hand in hand. They do not. Right. And, and like this morning I had a meeting with a parent and he was um, talking about his wife and he goes, well, she's really well-balanced. And I go, well, that's the problem because the things that her daughter wants to do are not well-balanced. Right. So there becomes this conflict because if you want your, if you want your kid to be well balanced, but then if your kid is aspiring to be great, then that means they're probably going to have practice on Thanksgiving. They're probably going to have practice on Christmas Eve. That's not what well balanced families do. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not normal in, in the sense of the middle of a bell curve. No. It's not. But on the flip side, you know, you know, and I was never an Olympian. I was a division two collegiate athlete, but it was just cool to be a swimmer. You know, I, I learned a lot about myself. There are times that I dare to be great and there are times that I was afraid. And I'm just so fascinated by like the mindset and why do, you know, people jump ship and what, what keeps people to continue on. And, you know, to, and like I was telling uh, one of my coaches last week, I said, if we can teach our kids how great, you know, when, when you don't do something all out because you're afraid of pain, how much the pain hurts. But when you really just step in and just totally go all in, the pain kind of goes away, right? And if we can take that lesson in other parts of our lives, we can really flourish. That's at least my thought. Yeah, I mean, total commitment in, in anything is difficult because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you know, I mean, this is a weird pivot, but in, in the book I write about fatigue and, mm-hmm. and where fatigue comes from and, and the the phys- the science of physiology has always thought that it happens at the muscular level that that waste products build up in the muscle or we run out of fuel in the muscle and then eventually the muscle is just like that's it not going to contract again but at that moment that muscle does that only about 40 percent of the muscle fibers are recruited only 40 percent of them fire so that's kind of amazing, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that hints at, um, and there's a long discussion of what's called the central governor theory, which basically posits that the brain it does this, that, that we decide subconsciously how hard we're willing to work. And um, Tim Noakes, who uh-huh. sort of is the, is the main developer of this theory, um, he talks about this notion that... Um, the the person who wins a race is the person who decides that defeat is the least acceptable. <laughs> um, and, and that everybody else sort of rationalizes it away. And, and that really, really speaks to me as a, as I said, you know, sort of an okay bike racer, you know, I, when I read that, when I thought about it, I thought of moments where, where I, essentially gave up in a bike race, right? Like, okay, I'm not going to win today. And so I'm just going to finish. I'm going to be okay. And then like, you immediately feel better. Like, why would I feel better? Because you've sort of, you've given yourself a pass. You've Mm -hmm. given yourself an an out to, to the extreme discomfort that you sometimes have in a bike race like that. So, um, you know, there's still controversy around this and it's still uh, some open questions, but um, I just, I think that notion is really powerful and, and it certainly spoke to to me as an athlete. Um, 
So I want to talk about, you know, mastering skills and performance because I think, and you mentioned it earlier about how we need to focus on the process instead of the outcome, right? And it's so hard because intellectually we have so much information, right? And there's videos. I mean, you know, and there's, you can get private lessons and, um, and the, the thing that a lot of times it help with parents that I find is holding that space for their child to go through their struggles is really hard. Because the parents like, I need to fix it. How can I take this pain away? That's our natural instinct, right? And so one way to fix it is changing teams or hiring a private coach or, you know, doing all this stuff or buying a better suit, right? And right. sometimes I'm like, you don't need to buy the better suit. Your kid just needs to get to practice. It's that simple. Yeah. Like right. Swim, swim more. Yeah. 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 Don't yeah. That technology, like, you know, a lot of times we will try and substitute technology for work. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to to practice and, and skill acquisition, you know, this is really, I'll be interested to hear your perspective from swimming, but let me just take it to team sports. Um, we practice really badly, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know that when I was playing team sports like basketball or baseball, you would, let's talk about shooting free throws. When you practice shooting free throws, the coach would blow a whistle and everybody would line up and shoot free throws and you'd shoot 10 or you'd shoot five and then rotate and somebody else would shoot five and you'd all stand there and like rebound and joke and toss the ball at each other. Um, you never, ever, ever do that in a game. Obvious. I mean, that's obvious when you say it, but why on earth would I practice free throws by shooting 10 at a time or 20 at a time? <laughs> Or a hundred at a time. Like, sure, when I'm building a baseline skill, of course, I'm out in my backyard. But when I'm a competitive athlete, the the absolute maximum number of free throws I will ever shoot in a row is three if mm-hmm. I'm fouled shooting a three-pointer. And I'm going to do it after being sprinting because I'm in the middle of a game. Mm-hmm. So what I should do is be in the middle of a practice and be doing a, a different drill or playing full court basketball or something. And the coach should blow a whistle and say, Mark, go shoot two free throws mm-hmm. because that's what it's like to shoot them in a game. Mm-hmm. You know, the more that a practice situation can ape the competitive situation, the better. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's, it seems obvious when you say it, but you, when we think of most practices, most of them don't. Most practices look good as practice. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of other things we tend to do, we tend to do very um, blocked practice. So, so when I talk about free throws that way, that's blocked practice. We just shoot free throws. We're out of the competitive environment. You know, if you're, I mean, you can tell me whether or not this is how it usually happens. And my swimming background is not super strong. Like if you're practicing starts, do you stand there and do like 20 starts in a row? Or do you do a start and then swim you know, two links, like you actually have to in a race mm-hmm. or four links. Um, I would argue that you're probably better off doing the second because, you know, doing a start and then turning right back around and coming back to the wall. Again, you never actually do that. You have to streamline and get swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tend to do a lot of partial practice. And that's the other thing is like just only practicing part of the skill. So volleyball is a sport where um, changing practice has made a big difference you know, it used to be like you'd practice if, if I was a setter in volleyball, I'd practice by a coach, like just tossing me balls, tossing me a hundred balls and they'd all be perfect. And again, that's never what happens in a game. If I'm a setter in a game, I get a bad pass. I have to scoot around. I have to improvise. I have to find ways through it. So, you know, the more John Kessel, who is, is a sort of brilliant sports scientist and coach and 
works for USA Volleyball, his commandment is the game teaches the game. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so he's very jealous of basketball because one-on-one is really useful. Mm-hmm. You, know, one, you can't play volleyball one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he's jealous of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I coached water polo for a long time. And um, one of the things is how do you get that game experience in practice, right? Because it's hard to get that same intensity. And so having lots of games is, is as much as important as practicing um, because mm-hmm. that's sometimes how you get that intensity. Um, Having lots of games and then, you know, like talking about one-on-one, you know, small-sided games. Mm-hmm. So Dan Coyle writes about this in his book, and I, I quoted in mine, you know, uh, things like futsal, which yep. is indoor soccer. And basically you increase the number of touches and, and you really amp up that skill acquisition, you know. So, like, you know, what's what's water polo, polo look like three-on-three? Three? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you, you know, you, you try and compress – you compress the skill part of it so that people have to interact with the skills and make more decisions more quickly. Yeah. And you, and the other thing with futsal is that you're playing in a smaller place. It's not luxurious, it's concrete and it's with the heavy ball. So they get better foot skills. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And what do we do in America? We want to create mini professional stadiums yep. for our, for our kids. So we go the reverse way. And then Dan will say, look, luxury take treat tells the brain relax. Yeah. Oh, you've, you've made it. You're fine. Yeah. And so, and and it's one of those hard things because what you're trying to accomplish as a coach, then society's coming in. It's because what, as a coach, a lot of times it's counterculture of what the culture wants. They want the outcome, but the path that they want to take to get there is very different. Exactly. So, um, yeah, as far as swimming and teaching dives, and I was thinking about how we run through it, and we're not a perfect organization at all. But with our young kids, we do a lot, and this is kind of what you're talking about with volleyball in the book, um, where we do a lot of just specifics, right? Where we're just trying to teach them in the frequency. And, and, and again, it's counterintuitive. You're asking your head to dive first into water. Mm-hmm. That's not a very sane or logical thing, right? right? And so some kids are like, no, I'm putting my feet in the water. So it's that constant repetition. Um, as they get older and stuff, there is more, you know, diving in and swimming and adding all the other complicated stuff with it. But when we first start out, you know, we actually have what we call dive practices where they're coming, but it's, it's, it's the age group. It's kind of the ability level of where they're starting and it changes as we go through. Totally. And that's, you know, and, and finding those developmentally appropriate ways to do that, I think is really important. Um, and then I want to go back with like, you know, the performance and the practicing bit, cause you talk a lot about this throughout the sports and, um, you know, whether it's the elite golf golfers that were changing their games and stuff, what was the thing that you found that was kind of, um, maybe some fundamental principles for mastering skills? You know, I think that, I think the root principle is, you know, you're not practicing to practice. You're practicing for performance. So practice shouldn't look great all the time. You know, this is another reason why coaches, I think, get into these traps. You know, one coach was telling me, you know, like when my athletic director walks into the gym, (laughs) he doesn't want to see players bouncing all over the place and missing shots and looking disheveled. He wants to see like a well-oiled machine that's, you know, getting tuned up. You know, practice should be ugly. It should be hard. We, you know, especially at the elite level, practices aren't very difficult sometimes. So, you know, Peter Vint is a, a, a scientist at the USOC and he works with um, some NBA teams. 
And they work on things like that free throw thing, changing that. But another thing they do is what they now call bad pass Fridays, which again is that same problem of like, if I'm a, you know, if I'm an NBA star practicing three pointers, I've got an assistant coach like standing there, like throwing me passes. Right. And everyone comes in perfectly at my chest. And that's again, doesn't happen in a game. So you've got to challenge yourself. So on Fridays they throw crummy passes to them because that's what happens in games is you get a pass that's low and outside you've got to, get it and regather and, and make the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything you can do to really increase the level of difficulty of practice. And, and I don't mean specifically when we're talking about skill acquisition, I don't mean the physiological difficulty. Mm-hmm. I don't mean swim 10,000 more meters tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, do all you can to, you know, so like some of your practices, and I'll go back to swimming should, it shouldn't just be like, okay, we're going to time you. It should be like, here's the whole competitive day as mm-hmm. nearly as I can ape it before nationals, right. From mm-hmm. getting called into a holding room and, and like the gap between your warm up, like you're not going to have the same warm up time that you do, or it's going to be structured differently. Like here's what the day is going to be like. Here's you're going to have to sit in a room for 25 minutes between your warm up and when the whistle blows to call you out to the deck. Mm-hmm. You know, we forget that stuff and, and, and athletes get to new competitive situations and so like, holy crap, what's happening? You know, what am I doing? I'm all disheveled and like and your performance suffers. Of mm-hmm. course it does. Well, and just, I mean, as a competitive swimmer, a lot of times I remember Dan Pink and I were talking once and his kids were swimming and they were swimming summer rack and he's like, you know, what a waste of time. It's like 13 seconds. And if you miss the race or, you know, you as the parent, then you've missed everything. And I'm like, no, the learning happens the moment that your kid either driving into the into the parking lot or walking into that pool deck. So the races may be short, but the the amount of energy that is expended throughout the day and the learning that's happening is quite long. And that's so that's for a young kid. And then like I was just in Arizona last week with my daughter who's in high school and their days were really long. You know, they were trying to get those tech suits on at seven in the morning, took us like an hour. And that was my first experience with that. And um you know, and then warming up, going to the trials in the morning, um, you know, swimming and then coming, eating lunch and then trying to get some rest and then putting the tech suits back on, going back for finals, you know, going to dinner. And all of a sudden, you know, you've you've been at breakfast at six in the morning and it's now seven o'clock at night and you're having dinner and then you're having a team meeting and you're trying to get to bed by 830. Right. Right. And that's day one. Right. And you're managing all these, like, you, you normally aren't managing nutrition that way. Yeah. Or probably don't have to. Or like, yeah, what, what do I do between a heat and a final to yeah. like rest and recover and both physically and mentally? You know, it's like all these things are, are a crucial part of it. Yeah. No. So when, when you were talking about practicing and stuff, I was thinking of the word engagement, especially like for skill development. And that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out, like how to get kids more and more engaged because, you know, they're there and they'll float back and forth. Right. And especially if they're no longer worried about drowning. Right. They're, they're fine. They're very they're very comfortable in the water. So they, they, they tend not to be as engaged. Right. Or they have their in their junior. My kids are junior high. So they're, hey, their friend is way more exciting than I am. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I think that's the, the thing about coaches is how do you get the kids engaged? And whether it's bad past Fridays or, um, you know, the, the different things that we're constantly trying to do. And here's the big thing that cre- can create problems. I know with parents is, you know, the parents may look at it or the AD and go, what are you doing? This just looks like a complete, complete disaster. Exactly. Right. Because they're back to that transactional mindset. Yep. 
and and understanding that success is not the straight linear road. I think that's so important. It's massive. I think you really identified something important there for sure. So, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming and talking on my show. This is I, this is such a fun topic for me. So I appreciate it. You're welcome. It was great to talk to you. Plusky, and his book is Faster, Higher, Stronger. And it's about how sports science is creating a new generation of super athletes and what we can learn from them. And so wherever you are, because probably it's not the super athletes that are listening to this show, but a lot of us who are parents, right, or maybe we're young and we're trying to become better athletes, thinking about what are the things that we can control? Because you may not have access to the technology or to the national training camps or the high-level coaches, but what are the things that you can control? And remember the very first thing that Mark talked about was sleep. Sleep is one of the things that you can control. And being really deliberate, there's so much research now about how important sleep is and how that you can take care of it. And it's not just about, you know, like I used to have this really limiting belief of why would I waste my life with sleep? I only need to sleep four hours a day because if I slept eight hours a day, that would be a third of my life. Sleep is really important, right? And it's something that I practice on. It's a value of mine. It's part of taking care of myself. And, um, you know, in, in listening to my body and honoring it instead of saying, oh, I can take shortcuts and I'll just drink coffee to make up for it, or I'll drink this to make up for it. Or, you know, um, I mean, some of the stuff I used to do to make up for the lack of sleep was crazy, but especially as an athlete or if you're a parent of a child, right? Or do you have a value of sleep? Is that a val- Is that something in your family's household? Because that is so important. That will actually help. And I know, you know, as a coach, um, that's one of the things that can be a, a, a huge game changer for kids. And, you know, parents will look at other stuff. What do they eat? Or let me be critical about this or that, about their technique or about their training or about me as a coach. But one of the things that they really can control is how they sleep, right? Another component is the nutrition piece. And there's a lot of controversy about what's the proper way for sports nutrition. I'm not saying you need to go drink Gatorade, right? But, you know, are you fueling your family? Are you fueling your body? And what does that fuel look like, right? Um, and whether, you know, I've only learned how to cook in the last almost 20 months ago. So I haven't been a big cook. Um, but I, I really work hard at trying to fuel my family in manners that are nourishing so that they can, you know, uh, that's one thing that their bodies don't have to worry about as they're athletes now. Um, and I know that was a big game changer for athletes that I coached in college where the ones that knew how to take care of their bodies and could actually cook and nourish their bodies versus the ones that didn't, right? So the nutrition, that's another one. A big one is the mindset, right? This is another factor that you can control. Like what are the stories that you say to yourself? And if you're a parent in the support role, what are the stories that you say to your kid? Do you agonize over the fact that your child is an athlete and it's a different dream than you had for yourself? Or, you know, are you showing up and supportive or saying, you know, this is really hard. Like, I mean, I thought I was going to be done with morning practices a long time ago, like 20 years ago, I think. And, um, and then I became a coach that really wasn't in the plans. And then all of a sudden I had morning practices again, cause I was coaching college and I had morning practices and afternoons. And I was like, wait a second, I thought I was going to be moving out of this. Right. And now here I'm for round three, because I have a daughter who's goes to morning practices this coming summer my youngest will be going to morning practices, right? And um, so morning practices, I remember being 17 and the alarm going off at 4.15 in the morning going, 
my last year in high school that I have to get up this early. Yes, college was much better. But morning practices, I'm now 42. They're still a part of my life. They're not my favorite part. I don't really like them, but it is part of the process. So how can I minimize the energy that I put out there? It is just a fact. This is what my daughter chooses to do. We choose to support it. So how much energy do I want to drain from that? And that goes into managing your mind, right? You hear me talk a lot about managing your energy on the show. The stories we tell ourselves are so crucial, right? If we tell ourselves that this is too hard and we can't do it versus, okay, this is a challenge, you know, and up for the challenge and, and, and hard is a good thing. But if we look at it as a bad thing or it's not supposed to happen, that's going to be more draining, right? So managing that energy is so, so important, right? And then letting go again of what normal is. And so, you know, my, (laughs) how I thought my adult life would be and how it is, is very different because my adult life is much like my youth life. Um, But I love the sport of swimming. I think it's an awesome sport if you haven't been able to notice. I didn't think I'd still be around, but I love it, right? I love the people involved. I love the sport itself. I just really love that space. So I keep jumping back into the sport, the swimming world, because I just really love it logically it makes no sense, but emotionally it's right there. It's home for me. So controlling the things that you can control, your sleep, your mindset, and your nutrition. Another one is trusting, right? Trusting yourself. If you're an athlete, trust your coach. And it doesn't mean that they're not flawed or not perfect, but that is something that I know as an athlete and as a coach are so, so important, right? Um, When families leave us, a lot of times it's just there's, they don't trust the process that we go through, right? They don't trust that no seven-year-olds, we don't want them to swim, but it's really in your child's best interest. Sometimes I'll have parents that will um, actually really actually absorb it because I'll say, tell me what other organization doesn't say, says they don't want your money because that's essentially what we're doing, right? We're saying, take a break right now and we trust that you're going to come back. It's not rooted in scarcity, right? It's rooted in well-being. Um, so having trust, right? And that doesn't mean you're going to agree with the coach. It doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, later on go back as an athlete and reflect and go, oh, I really thought that this was the right way. And now as I think about it, you know, maybe this is what I need to eat or this is how much sleep I need to get. It's always a constant experiment. But trust is another thing that's really important because if you don't trust, then you're spending a lot of energy on not trusting. That could be, and that energy that you're spending on not trusting could be used in other things, right? Um, and then the area that I spend a lot of time on, both with my clients and then with the, with uh, the kids or the team that I coach, the monsters, is the things that get in the way, right? And trying to remove those. So sometimes the things that get in the way are the stories that we say to ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm the worst swimmer here. Um, who do I think I am? Um, oh, I want to be more well-balanced. Well, if you want to be great, well-balanced doesn't isn't part of the factor, so that's something you need to decide. Um, shame is a huge one because shame is the voice of who the hell do I think I am? I'm not good enough, right? And we all pretty much um, have that unless you're essentially a sociopath. So it's not about not having those things or everything being so perfect. It's about knowing that they're there and how do you move through it? Knowing that, oh my God, I'm really afraid. Knowing that there's this this conflict because you don't want to be seen, but you really, really want to see what you're capable of, right? And that's hard as an athlete because if, especially as a swimmer, if you go stand on those blocks, you're having to, you're having to go into courage and it may be the thing you're most afraid of, but it's a thing that your heart so wants. And there's this conflict, 
right? So knowing that there's things in the way and what are those things? Maybe the things in the way are, how do I get to morning practice? Or, um, you know, for some people it can be as simple as, how do I pay for these youth sports? Because that can be quite expensive. But finding, figuring out what are those things that are getting in the way and then looking at, okay, these are the things in the way. How can I remove them so I can continue down, right? And, or how do I notice that they're there, but not let them hold me back? You know, because you can be on a great team and there can be toxic teammates. How do you not let what your teammates do or don't do hold you back, right? Because those are the things that can get in the way. I was just talking with an athlete the other day and they were um, talking to me about how some athletes were cheating, right? And it's like, okay, well, by them cheating, you need to not focus on that. It's about what can you control, right? Focus on the things so that you can move forward. Now, if somebody in a, in, you know, swimming, we'll, we'll call it a team sport, but in the end you get up on the blocks, right? Um, if somebody, you know, on a team sport, if they're not practicing their shots or whatever, and then they're, they're, they're supposed to shoot from the free throw line, th- that could be detrimental for, you know, those kind of so-called team sports. Um, so notice, noticing the things that get in the way and then how can you move through it? That is resilience. How can you be resilient? So I invite you, read his book. It's great. There's a lot of great information. It can trigger shame because all of this stuff can, but it's about what are the nuggets that you can take and how can you apply it, right? Because he breaks down a lot of the cultural barriers of you have to be an early achiever, early developer. Um, you need you need to do this or you need to do that. There's a wide range. And, and what is it? what are the things that you can control? I know you can control sleep. You can really practice on your mindset and your emotional intelligence. And from there, practice emotional fitness, right? How do you manage your mind? What are the stories that you think? I mean, these are things that we talk about a lot, whether it's Carol Dweck and having the growth mindset and saying, okay, I have, um, I have good effort while it's, you know, really trying to go all in and um, messing up and not getting the outcome that you wanted, but not giving up on yourself. One of the biggest things that I'm so passionate about is for kids or people not to give up on themselves, right? You may need to make adjustments. You may need to make changes, but not to give up on yourself, right? But how can you move through? Learning how to trust, you know, and and that's trusting. I mean, shoot, when you're the queen of certainty, like I I work I work on um, not being because the queen of certainty is the illusion of it is much safer for me. But I really work on that. Is you have to trust, right? And and that's really now you're vulnerable to trust somebody, but it doesn't mean blind trust. It means trust and check in, trust and check in, right? And then noticing the things that get in the way. What are they? Is it the mindset? Is it your support team? Right? Are they the ones that get in the way? What are the things? And then what can you do to maybe get a different support team? You know, maybe maybe you live with the college roommates um, who, you know, want to party and you can't get the sleep that you need. So maybe it's about finding a new housing location, right? Or um, maybe it's that you're asking for people to say, look, this is really important to me. Can you either stop complaining or jump on board, right? So there's a lot of different variables. And and like, wow, what Mark said is that, you know, we have the American dream, right? We can all be president. We can all be an Olympian. And one of the things that I always try to stress on the show is, what is it? What's success for you, right? And what is the life that you want to create? You know, the things that I've achieved in my life and never thought were possible for me when I first started. And that wasn't even the outcome, 
right? I was a kid who loved to swim. I didn't know that I'd become a national champion later on. Uh, you know, and that's not what defined me. I was a swimmer. I just loved the water. It felt good. It felt safe, right? Um, starting this radio show, I never thought that I'd have the listenership that I do or have this opportunity to talk to the people that I've spoken to, right? So I invite you to focus on the process and focus on the things that you can control. So thanks for listening to this interview. I do ask that you go to iTunes and submit a rating. Five-star ratings really help the show, you know, get higher up in the whole, I don't know, computer algorithm that they have over at iTunes. So that would be great. And you can sign it for my weekly newsletter at www.howshereallydoesit.com. Thank you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.